Okay, so we're going to continue with our study through the book of Genesis. Uh, last week we were looking at chapter 10 and uh, showing you that it really is history. It's not just some contrived list um, that has been thrown together in some old outdated religious book. I mean, it's the history of the world. It's the history of who we are, of where we've come from. And uh, as uh, we looked at from some of the things Bill Cooper's done over the years, you know, this has been verified. Uh, well, we're going to go on this morning to look into chapter 11. And it's where we get the account of the infamous Tower of Babel. Um, this is an incredible chapter. You know, so many of these opening chapters in Genesis are pivotal uh, in our understanding. Um, and uh, this one, again, is so much in here that helps us to understand the way the world is and why things are as they are. And hopefully as we go through, you'll start to piece things together. It's one of those chapters that if you study it and you realize what's going on, it's kind of there's a few light bulb moments. It's like, oh, that's why. Well, hopefully the, the Lord will uh, help us to see these things as we go through. So we begin Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Now, of course, God had created Adam and Eve, and we've seen their descendants, and so on, starting to uh, fill the earth. And, of course, it all comes to an abrupt halt at the time of the flood. But then after the flood, Noah and his family start spreading out, uh, and so on. And, you know, we see lots of descendants coming from what we were looking at last week. But there was just one language. It's interesting because there's a, a question that sometimes poses which language, uh, and there's a good suggestion that it may well have been Hebrew. Um, one of the suggestions is because in Zephaniah 3 verse 9, the Lord speaks about returning a pure language to all peoples. The Lord seems to say that he's going to go back to one language. Now, which language would that be? Well, um, Hebrew is a very interesting language. We're not going to spend time looking at the complexities of it this morning. But if you were to choose one language to convey meaning and ideas and so on, uh, the Hebrew language is really quite exceptional. So it may well be that that was the language. It's not really an important point, but that's just my peculiar view. And I, a number of other scholars, uh, I think, see the same there. So... So let's just go back and read the rest of that. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. So this is the descendants of Noah as we've come off uh, the ark. You've got Ham, Shem and Japheth and their children and so on. And so they started to move across uh, land from where the ark had landed, seemingly in the mountains of Ararat. A lot of people think it was Mount Ararat, which is where the arrow points to the top. Um, there's just a single mountain there in Turkey. But that mountain range kind of spreads all the way through uh, into kind of northern Iran and so on. And it may well be that that's where the ark settled because they came from the east and they settle in this area, this plain of Shinar, which today is in modern day uh, Iraq. It's not far from always the place typically where uh, Babel is, um, Babylon, as it becomes, uh, again, not far from Baghdad. So that's where they come. They settle this large, flat expanse there. We read on. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the, hot, the face of the whole earth now just a couple of simple verses here very easy to skip over this and not see some of the important things firstly they said okay we can comment on this in just a moment secondly they want to build this tower to the heavens why 
And the third thing is that the reason they want to do all of this is that they're not scattered abroad. They want everything to be held together. So really, what we're seeing here is this one language, this godless confederacy. Again, they said, the people are united in this, this plan. Plain of Shinar, we've said, and it's because of this location they've got, they said, well, let's do something so we don't start spreading out. Let's stay together. And we see here the beginning of this first world dictatorship under Nimrod. We've already saw in the previous chapter that it was Nimrod that founded and built Babel. And Nimrod's name, as we saw last time, means we will rebel. Now, Babel, literally the name means tower to the gods. Not the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who will later come, or the God even of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and of Noah. But these are other gods. So the question we have to start asking is, well, what gods were they worshipping at this point, so early on after the flood? And why, given the fact they'd seen and witnessed, or, or they'd heard the first-hand accounts of the flood, and we know they have because there's flood legends and accounts that have gone out into pretty much all cultures of the earth, how could they so quickly move aside from the worship of the true God into worshipping things that were not gods? Well, part of the reason, and we'll start to understand, is they wanted to worship the planets. And, and, and this building was to be effectively an astrological temple to get them closer, to give them a better vantage point, to view the stars, to view the planets, and so on. Now, it's at this time what in the Hebrew is referred to as the Maseroth gets corrupted into the Zodiac, which of course becomes the source of all sorts of problems in today's world and has done through history, where people get into astrology, not astronomy, not the study of the stars, but using the stars to try and interpret or predict their future or so on. That's nothing new. The interesting thing is the same in all cultures around the world. But that on its own suggests a single point of origin. But let me read to you from Psalm 119. Sorry, Psalm 19, correction. We read there, Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. And then we're told, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Well, let me just pause here and ask a question. What is it that the heavens are saying? If this has gone out to the whole earth, as we read, this is their line has gone out throughout, or through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Well, what words have gone out? In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Uh, by the way, it's just interesting because for many years, people didn't believe that the sun was moving. Now we know that the sun itself is on an orbit and our own little solar system is an orbit through the, the Milky Way galaxy itself. The sun is moving, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. In Job... 38, verse 31 to 33, he says, Can thou bind the sweet influences, Pleiades, or loose the bands of Orion? This is this kind of quiz that God gives Job at the end of the book. Can thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or can thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the domain, also the dominion 
thereof in the earth. Now, this word we have, Maseroth, is very interesting because it means the way. That's what the name actually means. Now, this is really quite interesting because as we start to look at other scriptures, Psalm 147 verse 4 tells us, He tells the number of the stars, He calls them all by their names. Well, man, that's just an incredible thing in itself because there's so many stars. I think it's been estimated that each of us could own a billion stars, and that's just the stars we know about. We don't know about the ones we don't know about. You know, it's just incredible the, 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 the breadth of the heavens, and yet we're told here that God has given each one a name. Now, this is really quite interesting when you start to put it together because, of course, you're familiar with the zodiac as we, we now know it, the Masroth as it was, and you'll recognize each of those various names as the, the ecliptic the, around the, the heavens is divided into this giant circle, 360 degrees, with each section, of course, um, being given this title or this, this label. Now, we're told today that each of those, as we refer to them star signs today, we're told that each of those is because the stars, if you were to join them up like a big dot to dot, represent those things. Absolute nonsense. If you look at them and you try and join them together, you would never come up with those things. They don't draw the shapes that they're supposed to illustrate. No, no, there's something much deeper than this. Because each constellation is made up of a group of stars. But the stars themselves have actually got names. Now, again, this is interesting because the ancient Persian and Arabian tradition ascribe the invention of astronomy, not astrology, astronomy, to Adam, Seth, and Enoch. It's just an interesting aside. No necessarily biblical reference to that, but... Tradition ascribes astronomy to those individuals. Why would it do so? Well, it's because the names of the stars tell a story. You see, the picture that was put on the stars was actually an aid to help remember the names of the stars. It's not a dot to dot and the picture is the the, the sum total. No, the stars each have names and they tell a story. The picture is a memory jogger to help us remember what the story is for each of the particular signs. Now, it's been found in a number of ancient temples and so on that associated with the Maseroth is the Sphinx. Now, that may strike you as a a strange thing, but the Sphinx, the name Sphinx, means to bind closely together. Now, if this is to tell a story... Where do we start? Where is the beginning of our story and where is the end of our story? Well, with the Sphinx, we've, of course, got the head of a woman and the body of a lion. Now, you'll recognize, of course, you have two stars that seem to, or two two groupings that, that fit perfectly with that. Virgo typically representing the woman and Leo the lion. So it's just interesting to start to see maybe the Sphinx is something uh, that was given as an indication of how we read this story. And let me just show you just some of these things. Starting with Virgo or the Virgin, going all the way round to the Lion. I'm just going to give you the beginning and the ending of the story and looking at the names of these stars and you'll start to see how this all fits together. So the star names in the constellation Virgo, as we have it. We've got a spiker, which is seemingly an ear of corn or a branch. 
or also represented as the seed, which is interesting. One of the stars is Zavi Jave, probably mispronouncing that, but uh, means gloriously beautiful. Another of the stars in this constellation, Al Muradin, which is who shall have dominion. So we've got a story straight in the names of those stars. We've got the branch or the seed, gloriously beautiful, who shall have dominion. The next group of stars within this constellation, Coma, which means the desired, Centurus means the despised, and Boots, which means the coming one. Do you see how all of this already is speaking of Jesus, the one who was born of the Virgin? Then we've got Arcturus, which means he comes. Our Catharops, which is treading underfoot. And then Necker, which means the pierced. These are just the names of these stars. Straight away, we start to see a picture. Now, that's the first of these groups. If we jump to the last one, we haven't got time to go through each and every one of them. We just look under Leo, the lion. One of the stars is Regulus, which is meaning, the mean of it is treading underfoot. Denebola means the judge cometh. And Deneb, as it said, is the judge shall reign. What an appropriate grouping of stars if this story is speaking of the lion of the tribe of Judah who treads underfoot, the judge is coming and the judge shall reign. Notice also within this group you've got Hydra which is the fleeing serpent, Crater which means the cup of fire and Corvus the ravens which in Revelation 19 we're told of the ravens eating the flesh of God's enemies. Fascinating when you start to look at it. Now, there's a really interesting book by E.W. Bullinger called The Witness of the Stars. He goes into this in detail. And it's very compelling when you start to look at it. Now, the question is, okay, if that's the case, if this really truly, if the stars were given to tell the gospel story, why do we not know about it today? Why is it not publicized? Well, we don't need it because today we've got God's word. But you appreciate that for a long time, the ancient cultures from, from Adam down to Noah and then down to Abraham didn't have the written word of God. And yet clearly there was this understanding of the gospel. So much so that the gospel becomes corrupted in Babylon as we were looking last week with this worship of mother and child and so on. So seemingly the, the stars were given and it seems to be exactly what Psalm, 109, sorry, Psalm 19 tells us. That Psalm 19 says that these things were given to tell a story that the story they tell has gone out into all cultures of the world Romans the beginning of Romans tells us that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood by the things that he's made so it's a very interesting line of study now of course when we go on thinking back to Babel and so on you recognize that we have days of the week that we we know and refer to but those days are not terms that we find given to us in the bible now it's interesting it's one of the compelling uh, little evidences that the bible predates all that was done in babylon you see the bible doesn't speak about sunday or monday or tuesday we have the first day the second day the third day so on the bible doesn't refer to any of these terms these are all terms that were given to name each day by the planets. Now that should straight away give you this indication that the ancient cultures held the planets in very high regard. Sunday, no guessing of course which that one is, that's, that's the sun. Moon, again, moon day. Uh, Tuesday, these are from ancient 
languages and cultures and things that have been passed down. Uh, Mars's day, Odin's day was Mercury's day, Thor's day, Jupiter's day, Thursday of course, uh, Freya's day, which is Venus's day, and then Saturn, Saturday, you're familiar with those. So even the days of the week that we have were named after these planets. So you now you start to think, well, why was it that these ancient cultures, and particularly at the time of, of Babylon, or Babel, why was it they were worshipping these things? Isn't it just a little bit fanciful? Isn't it something that easily would have been disproved or shown to them to be false? Well, maybe not so. You see, we are victims of our culture which tells us very much because of Lyle and Hutton and Darwin and so on that everything stays the same. The whole of uniformitarianism idea. The Bible speaks very differently about the past. Now, if I were to give you a quick astronomy challenge. If you were to go out and look up in the sky tonight, how many of you will be able to tell us which one is Mars? Maybe one or two of you here might know the answer to that. But probably you'd be looking around going, well, I don't really know. Okay, well then think about this. Because ancient cultures all seem to fear the planet Mars. Now, isn't that just a little bit strange from a planet that you couldn't even figure out which one it is? But they all seem to fear Mars. Rome attributed Mars to be the god of war. Why? Homer, the Greek historian or Greek poet, uh, described uh, Ares or Mars as the bane of mortals. I mean, Mars doesn't cause us too many problems today. But seemingly for ancient cultures, this really was an issue. Uh, You've got the Oropagus in Greece where Paul stood and debated with the philosophers. Mars Hill, it's named. It's the seat of judgment but named after Mars because of this idea of judgment associated with it. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which actually there's part of this you can go and see in the British Library, these these little tablets, clay tablets, actually blames Mars for the flood. I mean, just a a little portion of it. It says, uh, Enlil, the the name attributed to Mars, shall not come near to the offering, because without reflection he brought on the deluge and consigned my people to destruction. As soon as Enlil arrived and saw the ship presumably the ark, Enlil was wroth. So Gilgamesh in his poetry basically says that Mars was responsible for bringing about the flood. Now it's very quick and easy for us to kind of just dismiss this, but there may be far more to it than we've previously considered. You see, the Talmudic literature, the Jewish writings, and the Apocrypha both list list seven archangels. The Talmud assigns these to the seven planets as guardians. So you've got the sun, moon, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus. Samuel seemingly was assigned to Mars, which was another name for Satan. Just pause here because if there's any basis to this whatsoever, how interesting that we get to the creation of the earth. Maybe the angels knew that God was going to be doing something, The planets have already been made. Maybe God had already attributed certain angels to certain planets for whatever reason. And then the earth is created. It makes perfect sense that Satan would think, I want that one. And who else is God going to create this one for? Just some thoughts there. You see, as I said already, most most ancient cultures worshipped Mars and believed by some to be Baal of the Old Testament. And there's a number of interesting references to that. The Romans had two days each year set aside to honour Mars. There's uh, Tibustrium, which was the day of trouble, turmoil, tumult, 
which was typically the spring solstice, the March 20th, 21st. And then there's uh, Armilstrom, which was the day of alarm, uh, typically October the 24th. The, the first one there actually coincides with Passover, which is interesting. And the last one coincides with what has been suggested as the dates and the timing of Noah's flood. Now, also, as an aside, Romulus, when he founded Rome in about 750 BC, did so about 15 miles upstream of the Tiber, the river Tiber. Now, if you're going to build a city, you tend to build it at that time somewhere near the sea because the only real way of transportation was by sea, anything significant in size. So why build it so far inland unless there was a real reason that you knew you don't want to build it too close to the sea? You see, ancient Troy also was rebuilt seven times, but seemingly never as a result of war. Something had caused the city to be destroyed so on seven occasions, but it wasn't war. Now, the scenario is simply this, and there is some strong biblical support to these ideas. Firstly, the, the Old Testament speaks of these catastrophes that are not only a repeating scenario, but they are periodic. Usually they're reported to involve earthquakes, lightning, thunders, noise, volcanoes, and the possibility from certain psalms and other places where we read of celestial flyby scenery. Okay, what we're talking about is planets in the sky that would be more visible than we see them today. Now, four times in Hebrew records, the nights of March the 20th to 21st involved an angel from the heavens bringing fire, celestial noise, earthquakes, lightning, and destruction. Now, before we try and tie this together, let me just read to you from some of these psalms, and you get an idea. Psalm 18, the introduction to the chief musician of Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. And he said... Read, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation, my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, and the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Now, up until that point, we're fine. But then, we read, then the earth shook and trembled. We can't imagine that kind of situation. I mean, most of us, I, mean, I remember some years ago in Kent, there was an earthquake somewhere in the English Channel and there was a few buildings in Folkestone and a couple of tiles fell off the roof. You know, that, that's about the extent most of us experience of anything like an earthquake. Now, some cultures in some places in the world, some countries are far more familiar with those things. But David's not speaking here of just a, a local thing seemingly he's saying the earth shook the foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth there went up a smoke out of his nostrils and a fire out of his mouth devoured coals were kindled by it he bowed the heavens also interesting expression and came down and darkness was under his feet he rode upon a cherub and did fly 
Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the highest gave his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He shot out lightnings and discomforted them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered. At thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of thy breath of thy nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them which hated me. For they were too strong for me, they prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, we could just dismiss that as just poetry. But you see, David, the other psalmists speak of these catastrophic type scenarios. Ancient cultures speak of these things. So maybe we shouldn't be so quick just to dismiss it as just fanciful or just poetry or whatever else. Isaiah 24 verse 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. I wonder if that's in reference to what we're looking at this morning with Babylon, with the inhabitants of the earth being scattered abroad. What did actually take place at Babel? It's quite a statement to say the Lord is making the earth empty, making it waste, turning it upside down. Now, there is very strong evidence to suggest that at one time, historically, Mars and Earth used to be on synchronous orbits. Today, the Earth is on 365 and a quarter days and so on, and Mars is uh, 683, I think, now. But the suggestion is that previously, the Earth was on a 360-day orbit, which certainly fits with what we read in the Bible in terms of prophetic years being 360 days. It makes a lot of sense if that was the case. With the days of the flood are measured, the years of the flood rather, are measured in 360 days. Interestingly, we find that when we get to Revelation, the years are measured again in 360 days. So there's interesting thoughts there as to why that may be. We can talk about that maybe some other time and what's going to happen. But what has happened does seem to be interesting because if the Earth was on this 360-day orbit and Mars was double that, 720, on two occasions during the year, Mars would come much, much closer to Earth than any of us have ever probably considered possible. It would have tremendous effects if it did so. We would get typically 200-foot tides well, now that makes a, a really good explanation as to why Rome was built so far inland and yet seemingly designed as a kind of seaport. You'd also get land tides from the polar shifts, actually the crust buckling and so on. It would cause meteor and boloid showers. And how many times in the Old Testament we read about these things where we find that the Lord uses meteors and so on to rain down on his enemies? It would also have the effect of potentially lengthening the day. Well, don't we read about a long day in Joshua? At the same time, by the way, there's a legend of a long night in China. And maybe this is why 
at that particular point, March also got its, got its name as the lengthened month, which is, by the way, where we get the phrase Lent from. Nothing to do with what the Roman Catholics apply it to. It's a lengthened month. That's what March was because seemingly of these things. Mars may have come within 35,000 miles of the Earth. It means that the Mars would appear on the horizon larger than the moon. Just think about that for a second. If you woke up and you saw Mars larger than the moon, that would have a real impact on your life. And you can start to see why these ancient cultures had such a, a fear and reverence for these planets and why Mars in particular. Now, the last of these seemingly close flybys of Mars occurred in 701 BC, seemingly. And all ancient calendars were changed from that point. People often ask, you know, or try and work out why they were changed to what they are now. But the question doesn't seem to get asked, why did they need to be changed in the first place? Seemingly, this is also the time, 701 BC, of one of the events we read in the Bible with Hezekiah. And you just see a list there of all these incredible events recorded in Scripture that occur at either of these two points, all associated with incredible signs in the heavens. In other words, a... Um, astronomer um, from NASA uh, Donald Patton and a friend of his Robert Hatch uh, they did a detailed study not Christians by the way but they started to just play with these ideas with these models um, and they were overwhelmed with the evidence they found to strongly suggest that so many of the ancient catastrophes that we read about in the Bible occurred at these particular points now I'll leave that with you to come to your own conclusions. There's lots of other things you can read and look at if you want to. But what's also interesting is if we go through the Bible, we find lots of references to the high places. Let me just read to you from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 and 3. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains, upon the hills, and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Interestingly, the, the inhabitants of Canaan whom Israel went to dispossess, it was very well known that they had these high places, these mountains, these places on top of the hills, and so on. Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes for his name there, even unto... His habitation shall you seek, and thither shall you come. Now, this, these high places are very interesting. We actually find 98 times this occurs in the Bible. 36 times is referenced in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. They were places of idolatrous worship. They were high because people wanted to get to the highest elevation to look at and to worship the stars and the planets. And again, when you think all of the days of our week and so on are named after these things, it's not so far-fetched when you start joining the dots together. The high places were the optimum location, being the closest. It makes sense why they wanted to build this tower at Babel to get as close to these things so they could get the best vantage point to be able to worship and so on. Very interesting. Albert Barnes in his commentary says this, there were two reasons for the prohibition of high places. First, the danger of the old idolatry creeping back 
if the old localities were retained for worship? And secondly, the danger to the unity of the nation if there should be more than one legitimate religious centre. The existence of the worship at high places did, in fact, facilitate the division of the kingdom. I was talking about the time when Israel divided. And, of course, the place of worship should have been Jerusalem. But instead, they start to use these ancient high places again. And it becomes a, a real problem for the nation as they start to get into all sorts of idolatry. Numbers 35, 52 says, Then you shall drive out the inhabitants, all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their modern images and quite pluck down all their high places. See, once again, God was very insistent that they weren't to get into this worship. It was idolatry. It was replacing the God of heaven with his creation. Isn't that what we find, we're told in Romans, how they worship and serve the creature or the creation rather than the creator same thing has always happened through history just as an aside what do those high places represent to us well really it's anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of god anything that puts itself in that place of being more important to us than god it's really any form of idolatry in our lives could be considered a high place anything that is not of god that we have allowed or created or whatever that we allow ourselves to get drawn to. It's no different. You see, we look at those ancient cultures, and if all the things I proposed and suggested this morning are really true from a historical perspective, it's very easy to kind of distance ourselves and say, well, that was then. Yeah, well, we just got as many problems today. And we may not be out there worshipping planets, but people have all sorts of other things that they worship. Of course, is God number one? You see, what they were doing at Babel was worshipping God in the way that suited them. That is idolatry. You know, people will worship God in the way that suits them. And they'll tell you that, well, a God of love would never send anyone to hell. Well, that's idolatry. Because the Bible says that God will send people to hell. You know, people think they can approach God in any way they want to, any way they, they choose. You know, we need to come humbly before him in the way that he has told us we can come, not on our own terms. We can't invent how we want God to be and then go and worship him that way. That's not how it works. Getting back to Babel, this place in modern-day Iraq. You can look on Google Earth. You can zoom in. You can see here. You've got the river Euphrates running through. That's your town or city of Babylon or the remains of part of it there, you can see, and Babel, well within the 15 miles, by the way, that we're told Babel, uh, Babylon was, at its height, under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you can see some of the places there. You've got what was the palace of Saddam Hussein over there on the left-hand side. Again, the Euphrates coming through. Uh, at the top there, that's your part of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's palace that they've uncovered and started to restore. And then seemingly were the remains of the location of the Tower of Babel. Again, you can look at this on Google Earth on your computer if you want to. Now, you'll see also that right by the side of this, you've got lots of civilization. You can zoom in, you can see cars, you see factories, all sorts of things that are going on in that area. And that's interesting for a reason I'll mention later. Seemingly, again, you've got the this remains of the tower. Now, the ancient cultures had a lot of these ziggurats, as they're referred to. But this one seemingly was the place where Babel had originally been constructed. Let's carry on with the text we read. And the Lord came down to see the city 
and the tower which the children of men builded. The two seemingly separate things, which kind of fits very much with what we just saw on the map. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. You see, the problem was that because there was one language, because they were all now in one place, and seemingly Nimrod is now acting as dictator or uh, world leader over them, the possibilities seem incredible to them. Isn't it interesting that we've come to that time again? That we kind of have one language. You know, the whole world can communicate with each other. No longer do we have the kind of language barriers that we used to. And of course, with computers now, there really aren't any barriers to language. Verse 7, go to, let us go down. Let us, by the way, God says, the Trinity seen here. Let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. You see, God knew what they were trying to do. God knew this plan to have this effectively one world government. But it was the wrong time. Because the Messiah had to come. The law had to be given first. The monarchy had to be established. And so God confounds their language. And the people from this point then are spread out all over the earth. So the Lord scattered them abroad from theirs upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore, is the name of the city uh, is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. You see, building without God leads to confusion. Building with God brings harmony. We see that in Acts chapter 2. When the building is done with the Lord, well then the work is not in vain. But when we try and build without God, well the labor is very much in vain. Now, Alexander Hislop again in his book, The Two Babylons, makes these comments. He says, Cush is generally represented as having been a ringleader in the great apostasy. He says, Cush as the son of Ham was Hermes or Mercury. For Hermes is just an Egyptian synonym for the son of Ham. Some of you may have heard of Hermes before from history. Well, all Hermes is is the son of Ham. It's Cush. Now, Hermes was the great original prophet of idolatry, for he was recognized by the pagans as the author of their religious rites. So seemingly, just a generation away from Noah himself. From Noah, of course his son, Ham, And then we come to Cush. And Cush seems to be the one responsible for leading this whole rebellion. And it's his son, Nimrod, that takes the the throne, as it were. Speaking of a historian, this hygienist shows that Cush was known as the grand agent in that movement which produced produced the division of tongues. Historical references to these things are outside of the Bible itself. For many ages, men lived under the government of Jove or Jehovah. Without cities and laws, and all speaking one language. But after that, Mercury interpreted the speeches of men. Whence, an interpreter is called hermeneutics. The same individual distributed the nations, then, sorry, uh, distributed the nations, then discord began. Interesting, we've got all of these, these ties we start to see. I mean, you may have heard of this, the study hermeneutics. Where does it come from? Ham. And Mercury, again, just another name attributed to this individual. 
Mercury then, or Hermes, or Cush, the son of Ham, was the divider of the speeches of men. He, it would seem, had been the ringleader in the scheme for building the great city and tower of Babel. He goes on and says that Bel signified the confounder. And to this meaning of the name of the Babylonian Bel, there is very distinct illusion in Jeremiah 1 verse 2, where it is said, Bel is confounded, that is, the confounder is brought to confusion. It's a little play on the name. Bel meaning confounder because Cush, another name for Cush being Bel, had brought about this confusion by this rebellion. And so the Lord plays on that name, saying the one who brought confusion is himself brought to confusion. That Cush was known to pagan antiquity under the very character of Bel, the confounder, a statement of Ovid very clearly proves. The ancients called me chaos. Now, first, this decisively shows that chaos was known not merely as a state of confusion, but as the god of confusion. Chaos is just one of the established forms of the name of Cush, or Cus or Cush. You see, we use that word chaos, don't we, all the time? We're familiar with it. Well, did you know that that name has come down to us because of Cush, the one who brought confusion to the world at this time? It's fascinating. I strongly recommend Alexander Hislop's book if you want to dig into this. It is a real eye-opener into these historical links and ties and shows how these things have been brought together. Also, Cush, another name was Vulcan. You've heard of Vulcan's hammer. In Jeremiah 51, 23, it says, How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? Interesting. And again, Bel. Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces, Jeremiah 50, verse 2. It starts to unlock a lot of these things, and maybe we wouldn't have understood otherwise. Now, in regard to Nimrod, Hislop says this. It is stated that it was by the command of a certain king that this ringleader in apostasy was put to death. Who could this king be? Who was so determinedly opposed to the host of heaven? You can imagine the situation. We've come off the ark from Noah. We've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're down to Cush, the grandson of Noah. This rebellion starts. Nibrod then comes as kind of this leader of man. It goes on. Who then was most likely to head the opposition to the apostasy from the primitive worship? And Hislop says, if Shem was at that time alive... As beyond question he was, who's so likely as he? And there's strong suggestions that Shem was the one that went and hunted down and killed Nimrod because of all these things. Shem, out of righteous indignation, that people could turn away from God so quickly as this. Now, I'll leave this. This will be in the notes. You can look at this if you want to. It's fascinating because you start to see all of these ties and things around the world. The, the Greeks, sorry, the, the Romans have their god Jupiter. It's just derivation, derivation, uh, derivation, sorry, of Japheth. Shem. Interestingly, the, another name for Shem was Hercules. Interesting, given what I've just said, that person of strength and so on. He fought against the giants, interestingly. Another name for him was the Lamenter. Well, no doubt he was lamenting as he was seeing these things. Again, the names attributed to Cush in various cultures and languages. Vulcan, again, the divider. Mercury, Hermes, the son of Ham, as we've already said. Bel, and then Cush, or Chaos, the god of confusion. And then you come down to Nimrod, 
Various names attributed to Nimrod, including Bacchus or Bar Cush. You're familiar with the idea of putting Bar in the front of a name, the son of Simon Bar Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, one example we find in the New Testament. Bar Cush, simply the name means the son of Cush. The Romans worshipped the, Greek, the, the, the god Bacchus. Again, Nimrod, we've already said, married Semiramis, who various cultures is known as Rhea, Sibel, Diana, Artemis. And their child was named Tammuz, who Semiramis then cleverly says was Nimrod reincarnated, and so begins the worship of mother and child. We talked a bit about that last week. Okay. That is Peter Bruegel's painting, famous painting of Babel. This is quite interesting, though, because in the days that we live, we're seeing the whole thing come back again. Because that was actually an advert that was put out by the UN in their print, in their materials, which was printed, by the way, by the Lucis Trust, which was also known as the Lucifer Trust, back in 1922. Recognize the picture? You see, this is the European Union as it now is, rebuilding, effectively, boldly stating they're rebuilding Babel. If you look at their European Parliament building in Strasbourg, it has intentionally been designed around that painting of the Tower of Babel, and it's called the Tower Building. There's no guess what's going on here. There's a satanic undertone to what is going on in Europe. Interestingly, in the tower building uh, that houses the fifth parliament, it's got 679 seats, each of them assigned to an individual, except for seat number 666, which is not allocated yet. I'd leave you to decide where that means. Just interesting. I'll just share with you this, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this, but I just found this a little while ago, and I thought it was fascinating. Back in 1989, this individual by the name of Graham Pierce said this, There is a question of the continuing interest to students of Bible prophecy who are watching current events. There is a fundamental difference of outlook between Britain and the continental nation, and the impact of this on events will gradually separate the two. The detail of how an unbridgeable gulf will develop, we do not know. He goes on and says, We expect that as Britain becomes estranged from Europe, she will restore her old strong trading links with these countries, Sheba, Didan, and the Commonwealth nations. Britain has been under God's control for his purpose, a purpose to be revealed in the near future. Britain has no abiding place in Europe. She will be separated. That guy wrote that back in 1989. What was it that happened last year? Let me read this to you as well. A man by the name of Paul Billington said this, Britain is identified in prophecies that concern those who protest and oppose the aggressive northern power who comes to invade Israel. She cannot protest and oppose herself. She is therefore perforce not part of the European system when these prophecies are finally fulfilled. For this reason, writers over many years, some over a century ago, have seen Britain as being separated from Europe. Now again, I'm not necessarily endorsing those individuals, I don't know quite where they stand, but one interesting comment in the days in which we live, where we have seen now Britain come out of Europe. How interesting. And particularly when you start to see that behind Europe, 
there is without doubt a satanic influence. That's the geographical area of these things. But we've got two cities, and just to draw to a close now. You've got Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God. Interestingly, as I said earlier, Babylon was 15 miles on each side. The new Jerusalem will be 1,500 miles on each side. It's almost like God saying, is that the best you can do? In Zechariah chapter 5, there's a very interesting prophecy. It just speaks of this woman. Let me just, just give you some of the highlights rather than going through it now. We see this woman in this ether. The woman is called wickedness. She's sealed in this basket, seemingly with this talent of lead over the top, carried by two other women with wings of a stalk between earth and heaven. And this is what we're told. To build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. Now this is really interesting because for a long time people have spoken about the destruction of Babylon and so on. And there's lots of scriptures that make reference to this. In Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, it speaks of Babylon never being inhabited again. That the building materials won't be reused. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. The fall of Babylon occurred in 539 BC. We know that because the, the Persians under Cyrus snuck in during the night without a battle. The city wasn't destroyed because Babylon later became Alexander's capital. And it just eventually atrophied over the centuries. You saw on that map I showed you earlier, civilization. Life carries on even now in this area. And it is presently being rebuilt. Now, Revelation speaks, of course, of mystery Babylon the Great in chapter 17 and 18. It's interesting when you look at the comparison, I'll leave that there just for the notes if you want to come back at it, between these key chapters all speaking of the same thing. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. Now, I'm not going to go through all the detail of this, but Revelation 17 and 18, you've got one account. A lot of commentators start to talk about spiritual uh, um, Babylon and political Babylon. It's not. It's just one and the same. The theme is going to be the judgment of this great harlot. Why am I saying this? Because what we read in Revelation 17 and 18 is the culmination of God's judgment on the world's false religious system that began in Babylon. Just as we've seen already, all these ideas that came out of Babylon, the, the worship of the planets to start with, there was a reason for building Babel to start with, but then from that point on, with Semiramis, the worship of mother and child, and really the, the, the birth of all the religions that we see that are spread out around the world that keep people from God. Again, I'm just going to leave these things there if you want to look in your notes. I'm just going to jump just to show you some of the pictures. This is Babylon today. Interestingly, if you look at that bridge, you see at the bottom, I've kind of circled it there. It's only 4.11 miles from that point to the Tower of Babel, well within the old city limits. And you can see how inhabited that area is. Babylon has never yet been destroyed, but the Bible says it will be. And it's interesting because it does seem from what the Bible says that Babylon will once again become the center of the world's religions. It's just interesting with what's going on with the merging, even within the Catholic Church, the acceptance of Islam and so on. Some of the comments that the Pope has made recently, overturning centuries of history 
by saying that you don't have to be a Catholic to be saved. That's interesting. Very, very curious things going on in the days in which we live. Let me just jump to... Okay. So we just turn out the, the chapter. We just read the text because it's just the genealogy we've already spoken of. These are the generations of Shem. That word tolida in the Hebrew again, another marker point. Shem was a hundred years old and begat Arphaxed two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxed five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxed lived five hundred thirty years and begat Selah. And Arphaxed lived after he begat Selah four hundred and three years and begat sons and daughters. And Selah lived thirty years and begat Eber, as I mentioned previously, seemingly where the name Hebrew came from. Selah lived after he begat Eber 403 years, begat sons and daughters. Eber lived 430 years and begat Peleg. And uh, remember this is Peleg in whose days the earth was divided. Seemingly it's his time that Babel occurred. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg 430 years and begat sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begat Ru. And Peleg lived after he begat Ru 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Ru lived 230 years and begat Sereg. And Ru lived after he begat Sereg 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Sereg lived 30 years and begat Nahor. Now we're starting to get the names we're more familiar with. And Sereg lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. Notice that the, the lifespans are decreasing. And Nahor lived nine and twenty, uh, sorry, yeah, lived nine and twenty years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after begat Terah a hundred and nineteen years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived seventy years and begat Abraham. So there we go. Nahor and Haran, those three brothers. Now these are the generations of Terah. Another Tolida there, another marker point. Terah uh, begat Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran, sorry, uh, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of uh, Iscah. But Sarai was barren; she had no children. And that will, of course, be mentioned in the next chapter. And Terah took Abraham his son and Lot the son of Haran his son's son and Sarah the daughter-in-law his son's Abraham's wife and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan and they came to Haran and dwelt there and that's an important point because they go en route and stop at Haran we'll comment on that next time and the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran so these are those that lived after the flood of course Noah uh, lives for 350 years after the flood, dies at the age of 950. And again, I'll just leave this in there for you to look at, just so you've got a uh, breakdown. And you see the ages, how the age span after the flood starts to reduce significantly. Uh, but it is interesting because what we realize is, when we join all the, the dots together of this, that Jacob could have personally known Shem for 50 years. Interesting, isn't it? And we've got, typically, at this point in time, from the time of Abraham, it's that midpoint in the history before the cross because you've got roughly 2,000 years back to creation and 2,000 years forward to the cross. So it's that kind of middle point in the Old Testament. Now, next time, we're going to pick up from here and we're going to look at, in chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Probably fried your minds this morning. Lots of information there, but... uh, 
I just think it's fascinating as we see God's control of all of these things and how so much of history makes sense when we look at it through the lens of Scripture. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this world does make sense if we look at it through your word, through the lens of Scripture. Father, give us, Lord, just a a deeper love and appreciation for every detail that is recorded in your word. Father, help us to learn from the mistakes that others have made. Lord, how easily people have got into idolatry, to worshipping things, Lord, that actually we can see why they did it. But Lord, it's never about the why, it's about our hearts being obedient to you. Lord, there's always reasons this world will present as to why we should follow it. But Lord, your word says that we should forsake this world. Lord, that we should pick up our cross and come and follow you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that, to be obedient and to seek you and you alone. We just thank you for these things this morning. Father, we just pray you be with us through this coming week. Lord, we ask that you strengthen us. And Father, as we pray this week, particularly for those that are unsaved, Lord, we ask already now that you would bring in a harvest of souls for your glory that would come to know the truth, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.